Hey everyone, welcome to the Land of Hope podcast. Come with us this week as we plant our feet in the Land of Hope. So, last week we talked about how after Philippi, um, well, two weeks ago, Amos talked about how the team came down here, right? Silas, Timothy, Paul, and Luke. And they come to Thessalonica. That goes great. But they don't like Paul much. So the team takes Paul down to Athens. And Silas and Timothy go back up to this region. And they leave Paul in Athens. And Paul has nothing to do but twiddle his thumbs. Because heretofore, um, Paul has never been evangelizing without his team, right? He always has a team. First it was Paul and Barnabas, um, and now it's been Paul and Silas, and then Paul and Timothy and Silas, and then Paul and Luke and Timothy and Silas. But he's kind of down here to take a breather in Athens. And while he's down there, if you remember from last week, I'll just summarize. It says he was walking around the city, and his spirit was provoked because the city was full of idols. And we talked about how one... um, commentator called it a forest of idols, um, that Pliny, the Roman historian, said there were at least 30,000 idols set up in public places in Athens. So every corner, every nook and cranny is filled with idols. And so Paul then is provoked, even though he's off duty, he's provoked to start telling people about Jesus. So then he goes to the synagogue, as is his pattern, He goes to the marketplace and he talks with whoever passes by, which makes me laugh because you guys know that book, Little Women. Louisa May Alcott, like every time we go to Boston, we tour her house because that's the kind of nerdy family that we are. And they talk about how her dad loved talking to people about philosophy and they had an apple tree that was famous in the neighborhood, really good apples. And he would sit on a bench next to the apple tree and if someone walked by, he's like, I'll give you an apple if you talk with me. Because he so wanted to talk about philosophy, and I think most people were maybe kind of like bored with him. Does that make sense? Like he'd go on and on. But so he would entice people to talk with him by giving them an apple. And for some reason, that's what I thought of when I think about Paul. It says he was in the marketplace and he would talk to whoever was passing by. And I just think like, hello. <laughs> like, and uh, we said, you know, that's as close as Paul gets to being the guy with the bullhorn outside a Mariner's game or, or passing out tracks on the streets of Seattle, right? That's like, that's the first time we've seen Paul kind of do something like that where he's just walking around the city. So um, they're like, oh, you have something new to tell us? And they bring him to the Areopagus, which is Areopagus, which is this council of six people who are elected by nobles. And their only job is to look out for the religious and moral condition of the city. So if we're talking Paris or Vienna or New York, It's like this is the height of culture in this period, the height of philosophy. This Athens is the place where it all happens. Um, And he is being brought before the people that are kind of at the highest seat of this. You know, this is the city of Socrates and Plato and Eusebius and all these people. So Paul now stands in the midst of these people. Verse 22 is where we're picking up in Acts 17. And he says... Men of Athens, I see that you are very religious in all respects. And what he's saying is like, I see that you are God-obsessed. You are religion-obsessed. You are philosophy-obsessed. And remember, Luke in verse 21 makes a little aside. 
People in Athens and the people who traveled there liked nothing more than hearing every new idea, right? They're just like gluttons. It's like entertainment for them to hear a new philosophy or a new religion and then discuss it. So he's like, you're really into your gods and you take pride in being spiritually savvy. In general, this group of people especially, these six guys, would think like, there's nothing new we haven't heard, right? You can't tell us anything we haven't already discussed. And it says in verse 23, for while pass, I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Now, inscriptions like this to an unknown God could mean two things. It could mean that they were literally venerating God that they didn't know, like in case we missed one, put up a sign so we can honor them. But it's also possible that this was an altar, an ancient altar that had fallen into disrepair. And because they're very religious people, they're like, let's fix it up, right? So think of like gravestones and people who go cleaning them, right? So let's fix it up and that they could no longer read the inscription that had been written there, possibly centuries before. And so they would write to an unknown God in order to honor that God, even though they couldn't tell which one it was. Okay, so it's like a respect thing. So then Paul says, it's already in your conception that there are gods you don't know. So he is starting from where they are, right? And you still want to honor them. So you yourself, by inscribing this altar, are telling me that you're admitting there's gods you don't know, right? And he says, let me tell you about this God, a God that you don't know. So this is the tee up, the entry point. And notice please that Paul uses kindness, compliments, and gentleness to share the gospel. He finds something they're doing well. Worshiping a bunch of idols, <laughs> right? He finds something in their heart or in their culture that they're, they're doing well in a way for they want to give worship to whom worship is due. Um, the initial thing, notice, that provoked his spirit. He is walking around like, I cannot see through this city without 10 idols being in my view. And that initial thing that provokes his spirit and makes him be like, I gotta preach, I gotta tell people about Jesus, is actually the strength, he quotes, when he starts talking to them about God. So isn't that interesting? You know, um, because Amos and I serve at our district camps every year, junior high camp the last few years, um, we hear, you know, every generation thinks the other generations stink, right? Or has complaints, let's say, if we're being kind. So sometimes, you know, what do you hear about Generation Z? Like, is it like they eat Tide Pods or, I don't really know. I don't, I don't keep up on the cool kids. But I know that when I'm in a sour mood, things I could think would be like, oh, anything goes with Generation Z, right? 
like, you could be in love with a donkey and they wouldn't care. They'd be like, love the donkey, right? There's all these things that I could say, like, they, it's just like, everyone do whatever they want, uh, more power to ya, the strength is inside yourself, right? So when I'm, if I'm being cynical, I can say these things about Generation Z, and I remember being at junior high camp, or whatever new generation it is. I'm like, sure I was saying that about whatever was before them 10 years ago. Maybe it was me that things were being said about 10 years ago. Um, but I remember one year at camp, the Lord being like, you know that like where the raw side of them is like anything goes, don't ever judge anyone. I have never done anything wrong in my life, right? I was like, you know what the other side of that is? They love people really well. They have a heart that no one would feel shame. Okay? So do you see how, like, the very thing that pisses me off can be the thing, my entry point, to seeing what's great about them or what God can do with this generation? That's what Paul's doing here. He's like, oh, the idols! Right? We talked about it last week. That grates against him in many ways. It grates against his Jewish sensibility. Hello, I am the Lord your God, there is no other, and don't make any graven images. Okay, one and two of the Ten Commandments for a Pharisee. It's the air he breathes from the time he was born. So there's that, just like, this is so wrong on so many levels. And then there's the like, you all are worshiping all day long and you're worshiping sticks and stones. Right? So that frustration, that, that thing that provoked his spirit is the very thing that he uses as like the strength, the entry point to start talking to them about God. It's amazing, isn't it? As if it's almost like God can use anything <laughs> to bring people to himself. Okay. Amen. So this is the tea. Paul uses kindness, compliments, gentleness to share the gospel. He finds something they're doing well for they want to give worship to whom worship is due. And this initial thing that provoked his spirit that the city was full of idols is what he uses as the jumping off point to start the conversation about the God of the Bible. So in verse 24, he starts, sets in. The God who made the world and everything that is in it since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made by hands. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. Okay, so this is, he starts by saying, this is creator God. He starts Genesis 1.1. This is the creator of everything. He is the king of both heaven and earth. And this is such a juxtaposition because with so many gods, it's like, this is the god of the hearth. This is the god of childbirth. This is the god of archers. This is the god of war. This is the god of farmers. This is the god of the underworld. And Paul is saying he is the god of heaven and earth. He created all of it. Okay? An altar or a temple cannot contain him. And that is like straight out of the Old Testament, right? 
He doesn't say Moses says or David says. He just says, quotes the Old Testament without quoting it. He's not, well, in Philippians, blah, blah, blah. No, he's just like human hands and the temple. No temple could ever contain him. And then he says he's not served by human hands. And what Paul's referencing, there's so many places in the Old Testament, but you know, God says, I own the cattle on a thousand hills. And if I was hungry, I would not ask you. God literally says, I would not ask you for something to eat if I were hungry. <laughs> I love how God just gets real saucy sometimes. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm like, that's, I want to use that line sometime. Um, but this, like, this is what Paul is doing. He's like using his background. See, and this is where we're like, you don't need to know scripture to bring someone to Christ. You don't need to know scripture. You don't need to know. And, and I will tell you guys, like my dad, you can be like, some vague almost quote of the Bible. And he'll be like, yes, in 2 Thessalonians 1, it says, and then he'll give it to you word for word. I am different. My whole thing is like, read the Bible a lot and some kind of paraphrase of it will come out of you. You know, I can't tell you how many times I've Googled, like I'll know a snippet of what the verse says. I'm like, I know the idea of the verse and then I just Google it and I'm like, there it is, <laughs> right? But like, it's in me. So it comes out of me, right? And so that's where I'm like, I, I'm not expecting anyone to, I mean, you know, dad's next level, but I don't expect anyone to have that level of memorization, like word for word, but I do expect that as disciples, we're getting the word inside us. So that without you even noticing, it comes out of you. And that's why I'm like, I don't care if you read it or listen to it or what translation it is. Just find a way to get it in you. So Paul is bringing this stuff out. He's not quoting. He's not saying in our scriptures it says. He's, it's just coming out of him, right? And um, this is, as I said, straight up Old Testament. Paul is using a completely Jewish viewpoint and argument. A hundred percent. This is straight out of the Old Testament. And yet, he does not say Jewish, Jews, Jerusalem, Scripture, Moses, prophets, Isaiah. He doesn't use a single word that delineates. This is my background, right? It's a completely Jewish argument in completely Hellenistic language. There's not even a smack of Judaism in this argument but it's all from Jewish scripture. And this is the ultimate contextualization, right? Speaking in people's language. Now they're all speaking the same language, but culturally he's putting it in their language, not insisting that he uses his language to explain the things of God to them. And I don't mean, again, I don't mean English to Spanish. I mean, Jewish Pharisee to Athenian philosopher. He's speaking Athenian philosopher, right? He's speaking Greek. 
And it says, he goes on, and he made from one man every nation of humankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. So he flips it on them. He says, this is not a God that you discovered. This is not a God that you figured out was here. And then, oh, now we get to worship him. We get to set up an altar. We get to set up a temple. He's saying, this is the God who decided when Greece and Macedonia and Persia and Rome would rise and fall and where all of their boundaries would be. He is the one who is king over all of it. So you didn't discover him. He put you in this time and place. Right? He the boss. And he will exist after you. And he has existed before you. And this again, right, would have kind of changed their thinking because they have pride in this idea. It's like we're the most religious city in the known world. We discovered the great philosophers. We discovered the crossroads of all these religions. And he's saying, actually, God discovered you, buddy. And it says in verse 27, he did all this, their appointed times and seasons and boundaries, that these nations would seek God, if perhaps they might feel around for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. As even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his descendants. Now Paul does something really interesting here, which shows us what a smarty he was, but also the fact that his Judaism, his Christianity in this time, I mean, he's also traveled half the known world, so that's a clue, but was not circle up the wagons, right? If he was listening to music stations, he would not be only listening to K-Love. Okay? <laughs> no shade at K-Love. But with a completely Old Testament sensibility and apology, i.e. argument for understanding, Paul deftly moves to quote two Greek poets to set up and confirm what he's saying. So one of these quotes is like from 600 BC and one of them is like from 4 or 300 BC. And these are things that were said of Zeus. In him we live and move and exist. That is a word for word quote from a Greek poet about Zeus. Okay. And as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his descendants. Again, word for word, quoting this other poet about Zeus. Now, Paul is not saying that Zeus and God are the same. He's not equating them. He is saying, uh, number one, that he knows their world. He's not just some country bumpkin who's only ever heard one thing, and that's why he believes it. Right? So this is the part where I say, I'm really, 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 really glad that I went to UW and not to a Bible school. Sorry. I went to Bible school later because I needed to be around people who thought differently. 
who had all sorts of ideas, and I needed to butt up against them. I need to have a Jewish professor and Jewish cultural history that said that King David was probably not a real person. Go, oh, yeah, what do I think? He's got a beard. He's got a hat. (laughs) He should know. I had to butt up against these things and be uncomfortable and have questions that I couldn't answer. Because now, when I'm with people who don't believe, I'm not like a shelter. This is not the only story I've ever heard. Does that make sense? That is a strength and not a weakness. And as Christian parents, it is a balance. We're not just like, hey, whatever, man. Right? But there cannot be an insulation from the world we live in. Because then how does the world we live in, how do we speak to them? It's literally like, okay, no offense, but if you've ever been around someone, (laughs) not you, not you, not you, (laughs) homeschoolers who are fresh out of homeschool, okay, and have been insulated, it's like talking to an alien. We don't speak the same language. Not all homeschoolers, but you guys understand what I'm saying, okay? We don't speak the same language. I was homeschooled for two years. I turned out just fine. And so did you, babe. Did you just shrug? (laughs) It's It's like a Christian roast happening. Okay, so number one, he is showing that he knows their world and he's not a country bumpkin. I speak your language. Listen, I can quote your poets word for word, and I know that they have said these concepts to you. I mean, wowza. Are you you quoting Muhammad to a Muslim? Are you quoting the Old Testament to your Jewish friend? Or I mean, not Old Testament. This would be more like um, the Talmud, right? Or some commentary, Jewish commentary to them. To your atheist friends, are you quoting Albert Camus? It's very depressing but poetic, okay? I'm not saying you have to be like the most cultured or like red person in the world. I'm saying that's what Paul is doing here. He's saying, I understand your world. I mean, you could quote Beyonce to someone. What's something she says? Put a ring on it. (laughs) As your own poets have said, put a ring on it. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Oh, we've derailed. Okay. Number two, this is the second thing he's showing them, that even their own poets are reflecting the things Paul is saying. They're just attributing it to the wrong God. He's saying, like, these concepts are common in human history, and the people that you kind of look up to the most are are saying to you the same ideas I'm saying to you. Right? And then thirdly, that he is speaking their language in terms they understand. Again, he is not telling them what Moses said. He's telling them what their own poets said. And I think that's important because I know when I was younger, even when I was, let's say, in junior high, we were still what I would call maybe like a Christian nation, where most people, you know, at least went to church on Easter and Christmas where most people, even if they didn't actively go to church, had a Christian background, right? Let's say like the 90s, okay? And 
in our apology or evangelism, we would say, well, you know, in Romans 8, see, it's embarrassing. I don't even know. In Romans 8 something, you know, right? For all have sinned, and he's like, it matters where you're going. Say, okay, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, raised by the navigators. I'm saying it's like eight or something. Okay, guys, this is why we have dad in the room, okay? <laughs> Poppy Rich. Um, uh, but that's not the point. The point is, that's how we were taught to evangelize. Make sure you know the Romans road. Make sure you know the scriptures that explain the basics of the gospel. Should we know those scriptures? Yes, we should know that there's not a single person on this earth who hasn't sinned. Right? We should be able to say all, every single person has sinned and fallen short of God's standards. 323, thank you. I was going to say 823, so yeah. Boom. Chandra. Um, Google, this is what I'm saying. <laughs> oh, it's sad what's happened to our brains. Okay. Uh, do you guys see what I'm saying? Like, know it. But when I'm talking to someone who has no Christian background, who when you say Moses, you have to explain to them who that is. When you say, um, I mean, think uh, the gospel of Luke, you have to explain what the word gospel means and who Luke was. That we're not just like, here person, this is from my scripture, like what God has said to you. Like over time, sure. But when we're introducing these concepts, like don't speak from your background, try to speak from their background. If they have a spiritual background. I mean, that's exactly what happened when I got to talk with Liz. I know I use this example a lot, but it's probably the best contextualization I've ever done in my life. And so I'm going to hang my hat on that for a minute. But I was asking her about a God on a t-shirt, a Hindu, right? Hindu God. And I said, what is this God about? What does she mean? And she said, well, she's an archer. So it means to like go for the mark. Like you see what you want and you get it. I was like, cool. And she's like, yeah, I was listening to this podcast that Jordan Peterson did. I think he did like something where he, he told some of the Old Testament stories. She said, I have no spiritual background. So it's really interesting to me because I've never heard these stories. And she said, he said the Greek word for sin means to miss the mark. And I was like, yeah. So, you know, we're talking about archers. And I said, yes, that's what I love about Jesus is like, he made the mark. And so now I don't have to. She was like, ooh, chills, right? I don't even know if I said Jesus. I think maybe I said, this is what I love about it or what I love about what I believe is this, right? And I'm like, we started from a Hindu God. She shared with me something she had learned. I didn't say, well, you know, scripture says that all have sinned and fallen or all have missed the mark and fallen short of God's glory, right? It was like, now, to be fair, like, I have not yet shared the gospel with her beyond that moment. It's not like, it's not like, wow, Eleanor, you did that and then someone got saved. I'm saying like, that is an example in my personal life of a way that God allowed me or orchestrated an opportunity to say things that you already know or think of are things that what I believe has an answer for. Does that make sense? That's what Paul's doing here. 
And in verse 29, it says, therefore, since we are descendants of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed from human skill or thought. And what he's saying is, since we're the offspring of God, which your poets also agree is true, how could we then make something that represents him? Like he created us, not we created him, right? So he's going with the same argument. How could we think that if we're lower than him, we could create him? And so having overlooked the times of ignorance, verse 30, God is now proclaiming to mankind that all people everywhere are to repent. And Paul's saying he's held back his judgment because of ignorance, but, from, but now he is asking everyone to wake up and see what's what. It's being proclaimed or preached. Same word, proclaimed, it's being preached to you out of his mercy. So this idea that there's been a long span of history where it's not like God turned a blind eye to sin, but he knew that people were ignorant in their sin. And Paul is saying this is now a new season where because the word of the gospel, the word of God's being proclaimed, he's, he's not going to keep holding back his judgment once it has been proclaimed to you. Now you're responsible to respond to him. And it says, because he has set a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all people that this is the man he has appointed by raising him from the dead. Now notice, this is the first and only Christian verse in this apology. This is the first mention of Jesus or resurrection from the dead. Oh, it wasn't Joan. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> you did it, Joan. <laughs> it wasn't you. Okay. Um, no, but like, can you, can you believe that he's standing up in front of these people and he's not like, I know what I'm supposed to say. First of all, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Second of all, we can never make up that gap by ourselves. Third of all, you know what I'm saying? He's like, he starts from creator God. He starts just from this basic, like really a very Hellenistic way of thinking. It's such so logical. He's like, he created you so you couldn't discover him. He's the one who put you where you are. You're his children, so you can't make something that represents him. So what you're doing is worshiping like something you made of your own hands of which God is not. He's above you, right? So he's like making this case. And then at the end, he's like, P.S., Jesus, resurrection from the dead, judgment. <laughs> but he doesn't say the word Jesus because what will that mean to them? Nothing. Nothing. He just says, a man who was appointed by God in righteousness to judge you and me, right? And the way that we know that this is the man is because God raised him from the dead. And everything went great after that moment, right? People are cool until you bring in like repentance and then it's like, I'm out, okay? <laughs> So this is the only Christian statement in his whole apology. It hints at Jesus, but it's not where Paul starts. He starts with where they are, and he lets the new concept 
resurrection from the dead, which they think is ridiculous. That's his last thought. That he slips in. And you know what? It's a great litmus test. It's like telling people I'm a pastor. I'm like, it's like I wear glasses that analyze people's facial expressions. And I'm like, oh, I work at a church or I'm a pastor. And it's like, beep, boop, 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 beep, boop, but negative. Like, you know? And it's like, I know within 0.25 seconds how that person feels about church or pastors. So this is what Paul's doing. He uses this resurrection concept as his last thought. He knows this is the thought that he'll have the most trouble with. So he kind of buries the lead and he goes for the creator stuff first. Now, when they heard of the resurrection from the dead, some began to scoff, but others said, we'll hear from you again concerning this. Okay. So again, this is like the litmus test. They're with him until he says this. And then most of them are like, you're ridiculous, move along. And a couple of them are like, I'd like to hear more. Okay. So Paul went out from among them. But some men, when it says men, it means people. Some people joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Arapagite. So one of these six guys who were on this Athenian council, um, deciding the moral and religious stuff in Athens, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So he names the two people who were of note, okay? Powerful people, important people, or people who were still considered elders at the time. Interestingly, Athens is not a place where there was like a historical church. I mean, there a church grew in Athens, but like it's not one of the places that Paul writes a letter to. His next trip is to Corinthia, Corinth to Cor Corinth, and those people are a real trouble. So he writes to Thessalonica and he writes to Corinth, but he doesn't write to Athens, as far as we know. So what we understand is that like Christianity had some followers in Athens, but this very, very religious place that considered itself very spiritually savvy wasn't necessarily like the place where the gospel sprung and spread as it maybe had in other regions. And I find this usually to be true. People who think of themselves as very savvy and with it and spiritually attuned um, tend to be like less humble and less soft. And that's true of Christian, I think it's happy screaming. Those are, that's true of Christians and non-Christians, right? But religiously proud people who are proud of what they believe in and kind of like, I've got all the answers. They just tend not to be soft and open, right? And I think that's what Paul experienced in Athens. But what's really cool is that this kind of off the cuff, I wasn't planning on evangelizing here, practice of contextualization well, one of those six men became a Christian. And one of the leading women of the city became a Christian. And they were there in that place. And it, there was a church in Athens. It's just not at, of note as the other ones were. And so I love it. It's like some laugh and some want to hear more. And Paul spends all of his time arguing with the people who laughed at him. No. 
he leaves and he's like, if you'd like to follow me, I will tell you more. And that's enough for him. Paul, who seems argumentative and is kind of harsh sometimes, just doesn't spend his energy on the people who are like, that's stupid. He's like, if you're hungry to hear more, I'll tell you more. And this is a picture of open doors that we've been talking about for a year, right? An open door looks like an open door, not a door slammed in your face. Where are the open doors, Lord? Where is someone ready? Where is someone soft? One out of six wanted to know more and said yes to Jesus. And I think that's a really good ratio, actually. You know? One out of six. I, I, I would love that ratio. I think we can just pray. Yeah? Okay. Oh. Lord, we thank you for your word, how it speaks to us and teaches us and makes us feel human and, and just kinship with all the people who've gone before us. Lord, I thank you that there is no point in time where you are surprised or you're, you're caught without knowing what to do. But Lord, that in every season and every place, Lord, you have a plan and you have people who are open to you. You have people who are ready. And Lord, I just pray too that um, there would be just a release from pressure for us to have everything memorized, to have a perfect plan. Lord, that as we are filled with your spirit and we respond to you, God, we know that we're in good hands. It doesn't have to go perfectly. Not everything needs to be said. God, would you help us to hear you and to be brave to follow you, Lord? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hi, thanks for tuning in today. If anything that you heard moved you or touched you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. So please head on over to discoverhope.org connect and connect with us. And if you'd like to support the podcast or even sponsor the podcast, just head on over to discoverhope.org giving. Thanks.